Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at ren-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. Y'all can have a seat. Again, welcome today. Um, So glad you're here. Great to see your faces this morning. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we are four weeks in now uh, meeting as a church body. We started uh, over a year ago meeting in homes in, in smaller groups that we call house churches. And that's part of our strategy here as a church, that we believe that there's something about the community of people coming together, doing life together, learning about one another's stories, and, uh, and reading the word, and praying, all these things together in the home. It's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. So we have that going on on Wednesday nights, and we would love for you to be involved in that. We've got a group that meets at my house, and then one that meets um, uh, near my house. It's a young adults group. For those of you that might uh, be younger and you don't have kids yet or, or something like that, awesome group for you. We also have um, another that the Lamberts leads. We'd love for, for you to be a part of that. Um, about five years ago, the Lord spoke to me as I was praying one night about planting this church. And as I was praying that evening, uh, the Lord said to me, plant a church. And then I said, Lord, what, what do I call it? And he said, Renaissance. I want to tell you a quick story. Um, uh, about six to eight months ago, Zach Lambert is, is one of our core team members. He's out, he's running the words today in the back. You probably know Zach because everyone in town knows Zach already. So he's just that kind of a guy. He's meeting with a city commissioner And uh, this commissioner was telling him about a speech that the mayor of our town had given. And in the speech, the mayor's saying, um, there's a renaissance coming to Richmond. And she begins to compare Richmond to Florence, Italy. And she kept saying, there's a renaissance coming to Richmond. There's a renaissance happening in Richmond. And so Zach stops the man as he's speaking, telling him this story. He's like, do you know the name of the church that we're planting He said, no, what is it? He said, it's called Renaissance. And when I first heard that story, I had the like the hair stand up on the back of my neck of like, oh my gosh, like crazy how God is moving. We really believe that God has brought us here for this time in this city, that he wants to pour out his spirit and his kingdom in an an unseen way, a way that's never been seen before. And uh, we want to be a part of that, about his kingdom move right here in Richmond. Um, I I said this the first week, I'll say it again. We are the church. And and here's what I mean by that. I don't mean that we're the only church because this town is full of awesome churches that we love and that we support. But we, the people, are the church. The church is not a building. It's not a time slot on Sunday morning. The church is God's people on God's mission for God's glory. That's who we are. It's not something we go to. It's not something we do. It's part of our identity. God is making us into his people together. And we are renaissance. That's a French word that that translates to rebirth, renewal, revival. 
and what story is, where you've come from, but I believe that God has a plan for you and it's a very, very good plan. And it's all about you coming fully alive, being renewed by his spirit. And that's what we're about as a church, seeing God's renewing work. We have a mission statement. It says that we exist to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel. That gospel is the good news of Jesus, the seed of renewal. We bring the gospel into all of life in all the earth. Because what God wants to do inside of you is he wants to do something in your heart that absolutely restores and renews you to the image that he had in mind when he thought you up, when he created you. And then he wants to release you into your world, into this community, wherever you work and wherever you play and wherever you eat, all those things. He wants to release you as an agent of renewal. And so we are the church and we are renaissance. We started um, week one with a series called Jesus in His Own Words. I am Jesus in His Own Words. And what we're doing is we're looking at seven identity statements that Jesus made about Himself in the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is unique from the other Gospels and that the others focused on the miracles and on the sermons of Jesus, but John really focused in on the identity of Jesus. I thought it'd be really, really important for us as we start a new church that we go back to the founder because there's a lot of people that have said a lot of things. We all have a lot of maybe church experience that we've, we've seen in the past and we really, really have to kind of cut away all that and go back to the original source and say, what did Jesus say? And so that's what we're doing as a church family is we're walking through the I am statements. We started week one with I am the bread of life. In week two, he said, I'm the light of the world. Week three, he said, I am the gate. We talked about that last week. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about I am the good shepherd. We find that in John 10. We're picking back up where we left off last week in the scriptures. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go there. And if not, we have it on the screens for you as well to read with us. But I want to read this passage from John 10. It starts in verse 11. And uh, this is Jesus speaking, and I'll, I'll just remind you of this. We talked about this last week, if you were with us, that in John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, right? Awesome. That's so cool. He, he spits on the ground, and he makes mud, and he puts it on that guy's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool. And all that was great, and the people were excited. This man that was born blind can see now, but he did it on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees have an oral tradition that you do not do anything like this on the Sabbath day. So now he's in this exchange back and forth with the Pharisees. And that's the context of what we're reading. He's responding to them. Okay. So verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care about the sheep. Verse 14, he says it again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have this exchange with the Pharisees, and he's talking about this hired hand and this good shepherd. He's contrasting these two realities. Um, There's a story that my wife tells uh, often, and it's a story of her going overseas. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip overseas. Uh, She got to go to Korea, South Korea, Seoul, South Korea, for like, was it two months, about two months roughly that you were there? Um, and this is fact, while she was gone, I just was praying about like, do I pursue her or not? We were still dating. And when she came back, that's when I was like, bro, we're going all the way to the finish line. I'm going to marry this girl. So this was like a cool time in our lives. And, uh, and she is in South Korea. She was with a bunch of college girls and they're all living in this apartment uh, with the host family. Now, can you imagine seven or eight girls all living together for two months straight in one small apartment? They started to get a little bit like, we, we call it catty at times, ladies. I, that's offensive. I'm sorry if that's offensive. But there was some things going on where they were starting to not do well. And so our pastor said, okay, 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 okay. Here's what we need to do. Y'all need to kind of separate, okay? Y'all need some time away from one another. And so we encouraged them, all of you just need to kind of take a day and just get away from one another. Well, my wife thought it would be a great idea. I don't know what made her think this, to travel three hours away to the zoo in South Korea. She took a bus and then a train and then some other stuff, all this huge, uh, this is a huge city, massive city. You know, I, I don't know what the population, but it's, it's a massive city. And she travels all the way to the zoo and she gets to the line and in Korea, everything's in Korean. It's all symbols. And if you don't know uh, Korean, you are, you're out of luck. She gets to the zoo, she's standing in line and she's trying to buy a ticket and it's like, no one understands what she's saying. So a, a cum-haired, blue-eyed American girl standing in line, and they think, this is our opportunity to practice our English. So they begin to help my wife. They help her get a ticket. Um, she's like, thank you, thank you. And, and this zoo has like a gondola, and you actually ride and look down on all the animals. That's how you see the animals at this zoo. So she hops on a gondola, and before she knows it, this couple hops on next to her, and she's like, Oh, hi, uh, you again, right? And the whole time they're trying to practice their English on my wife. Well, they finish the gondola ride, they get back to the, the train station and they said, we, we take you to eat. And she's like, uh, okay, like kind of stunned. Like she's wanting to be like grateful for their hospitality. So she's like, oh, okay. And so she's walking towards the train and they go, no, no, no car. We have car. And so she gets in the car. 
with this couple she's never met before beyond this moment. She gets in the back seat and she said they started driving her down the strangest back alleys of Seoul, South Korea to get to this restaurant. I mean, it's like back alley to back alley to back alley. They go in the back door of a restaurant and walk through the kitchen and she's thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Like, this is bad. I've seen this in movies. This is where they throw me in the freezer and kill me, right? You know? And so finally they get out to the front and she's, um, they're, they're purchasing the food. They're beginning to prepare the food in front of her. And the, um, the way that she sees, she can see out this window towards the street. And they're kind of facing towards the kitchen. Well, as they're trying to talk to her and they're preparing the food, she sees a bus come by. And it's this one number that she knew that she had to memorize, like this is the bus that goes to the apartment complex where she's staying. She, she didn't even know the address to the apartment that she was going to have to ask them to take her. So she was thinking, oh my gosh, I will never get home unless I, I get on that bus. And literally in mid conversation, she grabs her backpack and sprints out the door. She doesn't even say goodbye. She sprints out the door, gets on that bus and makes it onto the bus in the nick of time, standing room only bus and gets there. Now, while she was in the backseat of that car, this family that spoke very broken English started to joke around with her and they said, we kidnap you, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Have you ever had a feeling of someone's leading you somewhere, but you don't know where they're going? And you don't know where they're taking you, and you're not so sure you trust them. Ever had that feeling before? Someone's leading you around somewhere and you're like, I don't know about this person. I don't know where they're taking me. I don't know what's going on. Maybe you've been in another country and you've experienced that before, right? That's kind of what this passage is about this morning. See, this passage is really about leadership. What Jesus is talking about here is leadership. When he talks about being a shepherd, he's talking about a shepherd leading a flock of sheep someplace. And the question is, is that shepherd good? Or is he like the hired hand that runs away when danger comes? Can this person be trusted? Where are they taking me? Right? We live in an age right now of leadership suspicion. I mean, that is one of the marks of our age. If, if anyone comes to you and says, trust me, trust me, follow me, follow me, you're probably going to think, mm, I don't think so. Right? When, when a politician, even right now in this season, they're announcing, hey, I'm going to be running for office in 2020, right? And they start giving you their grand vision for the future, and you're thinking, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't even know if you could pull that off. Like, that's a great idea, but I don't even know you have what it takes to do everything that you say you're going to do. We live in an age of leadership suspicion. We live in the age of investigative journalism where every leader that we know gets picked apart with uh, these stories, right? We, we live in the, in the age of revisionist history where all of our heroes in the past are recast in a different light where we're not so sure that they were as great as we thought they were. We have a deep mistrust of leaders and of leadership. And uh, in the midst of that, we all deeply, deeply want to be led. 
I want to read you a quote. This is from um, a resource that we're working on for us as a church body. I've been working on this for months, and we're almost done. Hopefully in the next month we can uh, give this to you, but it's called Framework, and it's a discipleship journal. And what it is, it's, a, it's just a collection of passages that you could go through and kind of read and understand and ask questions about. And as I was writing the, uh, the introduction for this, I just adapted some words from a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I want to read this. I think we're going to have this for you on the screen. First, this quote from Jesus. It says, go therefore to every ethnic group and help them become my students. That's from Matthew 28, 19. He writes this, who teaches you? Whose disciple are you? Honestly, one thing is sure, you are somebody's disciple. You learned how to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions to this rule, for human beings are just the kind of creatures that have to learn and keep learning from others how to live. Probably you are the disciple of several somebodies, and it is very likely that, you are sha- that, that, has sh- that they have shaped you in ways that are far from what is best for you or even coherent. It is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then to evaluate the results in us of their teaching. This is a harrowing task, and sometimes we just can't face it. But it can open the door to choose other masters, possibly better masters, and one master above all. Here's what I love about that quote. Is he's saying, basically, you're going to be led by someone. Someone is leading you. The question is who? And is it someone good? Is it someone who's trustworthy? Someone who actually has the power or the understanding to actually lead you in the right Direction. Who is your master? Who's leading you? You know, we might think that uh, because we don't, you know, subscribe to any particular spiritual leader or uh, a church or something like that, that we would think that we're not being led. But um, I, I absolutely guarantee you that the culture is leading us somewhere. We're being discipled by our culture right now. Um, there's a book called Nudge, and in this book, uh, the, the author is, a, I think it's a 2017 Nobel uh, Prize winner, and he, um, he talks about choice architecture. And he, he uses an example from a school, a school cafeteria, where they uh, begin to change the choices that kids had. So they used to have the choice of like, okay, uh, with your meal, would you like a brownie or a cookie or a piece of cake? Right? All like unhealthy choices. Well, they changed the choices so that they would have, okay, would you like an apple a banana or oranges, right? They're just changing the set of choices. So they're not taking away the power to choose. They're just selecting different options for you to choose from. If you're a parent, you become a master in this, right? Here's what we tell our kids. Would you like to go to bed, get a spanking, or go to bed? Which one would you like, right? <laughs> go to bed. Thank you. That was the right answer, but I didn't want to make you have to choose that. I'm giving you a choice, but it's a carefully selected options here of what you can do, right? We have ways that we use this. We know intrinsically about choice architecture. 
But let's just take that towards the darker, more sinister side of our society. Right now, we are being, being given choices. I think America felt a little bit of this at the last election, where the, the, both parties offered up candidates that a lot of Americans didn't feel like they could wholeheartedly embrace. Like there was something about both that were like, ah, just not so sure. I, I, I want to be able to trust, but I just, I'm not sure. But we felt like we were given two choices that we didn't feel fully 100% able to embrace, right? We have um, choices that are being offered to us about sexuality, right? Either you embrace all these forms of sexuality or you are a hateful, oppressive person that doesn't care for the well-being of others. Which one are you? And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Why are you trying to why are you trying to corner me into these choices? I think we see this right now with gender. I think this is a huge one in our culture about gender. Like either you believe that gender is, is, is bestowed, right? Or it is discovered. And, and if you don't believe that someone can discover their own gender because they evolved from something else and therefore, you know, they have to figure out what they are. And, and so now children are being asked, you know, what are you? So, so either you're, you're that or you're someone who's oppressing them and trying to stomp out their personhood. You're not allowing them. We're, begin, we're being offered choices that are very limited choices. And it's trying to mold us to think a certain way about issues in our day. We're absolutely being discipled by our culture. The question is, where are they taking us? Where do these choices lead us ultimately? Is this trustworthy? Who is leading us? We see this in church, in religious forces, okay? It's, there are people that have a God-given vision that can stand in front of people and say, here's what the Lord is doing, here's where he's leading us, and people will follow that kind of person. But if you don't have a God vision, you don't have a God-given vision, and you're, a, you're a, a spiritual leader, what you have to do instead is begin to drive people from behind. And you say, go that voice. Go that way. Do this, right? And if they don't, because sheep don't recognize that voice and they begin to scatter away, just like Jesus taught, then what, what, what happens in, in religion is we, we release the dogs, the dogs of, of guilt and the dogs of shame and the dogs of condemnation and the dogs of fear of losing your community, right? We release the dogs to get people back in line, like get back into the herd. And so people think about church and they're like, no way, not church. Church isn't my leader. I've seen what those people do. I, I, I don't want any of that, right? Because they've seen religion at its worst, people just releasing the hounds of fear and condemnation. We see this uh, in our families, right? We have forces within us from our families of origin. We have what's called a first formation where we were raised in a certain kind of home or maybe raised without parents, maybe abused, maybe neglected, or maybe you were in that like all-American awesome family, but yet even the best family is broken. Right? We all have issues that are like these, these invisible forces, and yet every choice we make is, is kind of colored by that formation within us. 
Right, so there's forces at work that are leading us, and we might think, no, 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 nothing's leading me. And the reality is that we don't live in a vacuum. Something is leading you. We might think, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm self-led. I'm autonomous. I'm self-directed, right? I'm self-made. H- have you ever had an addiction before? I have. Ever known anyone who has an addiction before? <laughs> I-, I know people with addiction. Guess what? They think they're self-led, but they're leading themselves into a pit. And they feel powerless to rescue themselves out of it. They can't lead themselves out of the addiction. In fact, the scripture teaches that we, it's not that we have to be self-led. We need to be actually rescued from ourselves. That's what the scripture says, that God is not calling us just to self-lead, but to actually be rescued from ourselves. So this idea that we might have that nothing's leading us, and I don't follow anybody, and I don't trust anybody, I'm, I'm self-made, I'm self-led, that's just, it just doesn't work. And we can't escape the reality that in this passage, the, uh, we, we know the Pharisees are the hired hands, and we know that Jesus is the good shepherd, and then that leaves the other character in the story, which is the sheep, and that's talking about you and me right? And sheep, uh, I I don't know much about sheep, but I just know that they're not very smart. That they have been, um, uh, they're like perfectly made to be eaten by just about anything, right? That I've heard that sheep are are so dumb that they'll get so annoyed by flies in their ears that they'll beat their head against a a stone or a post until they die. I've heard of sheep, uh, they, they will die of thirst, literally feet uh, from a water source because they just couldn't see it over the next hillside. Like they will die in a field because they don't know where the water is. They'll, they'll drink polluted water from, from animal feces. And, it's, and just imagine like a, a sheep drinking and it, surely someone thought like this tastes funny. Like this doesn't taste right. George, does this taste right to you? And then they just all start keep drinking and they all get poisoned to death, right? These sheep... Oh, guys, it's, it's just a little bit comical that we're compared to sheep. And here's the thing about sheep is they have to be led. We all have to be led. So the question is really who is leading us? And I think this is where the words of Jesus really begin to speak to us today. I just want to walk through this passage together and just look at the quality of his leadership. So let's just start back in verse 11. He says that I am the good shepherd. The first quality that he tells us is, look, I'm good. And what he means by that is I'm not evil. Like I'm not wicked. I'm not trying to deceive you. I'm not trying to take you into some place that is terrible. Like I'm good. Like I'm going to lead you into good things. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. And he's contrasting the, the leadership of the Pharisees with his leadership. And he's, they don't care whenever trouble hits, whenever the wolf comes, they're gone. They don't care about you. They're, they're, they're going to save themselves. But I'm different. I'm faithful. I'm going to be right there. When the, when the darkness comes into your life, I'm there. When the wolf is at the door, I'm there. I'm faithful. 
In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Think about that statement. Just as the father knows me. Jesus said over and over, the father and I are one. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. He talked over and over again about this unhindered, intimate relationship that he had with his father. That, that same word would be used to talk about how husbands and wives know one another. There's an intimacy about the leadership of Jesus, that he is the one who actually knows us. It's personal. It's not generic leadership. He says, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Um, years ago, uh, we went through the town of Roswell, New Mexico. Have you all ever been to Roswell, New Mexico? Anyone ever been there before? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really creepy. Okay, there's Area 51. We went into this diner. It was the middle of the night. We're driving to Colorado. We go into a diner, and there's like alien stuff everywhere. And people are smiling us with this like really weird smile. It's a really weird look in their eyes. And I was like, let's get out of here like as fast as we can, okay? It's the whole alien fascination. Now, I've heard people use this passage to say, there's aliens, man. Jesus said it right here, right? There's aliens, there's people not from this sheep in and they, they, okay, that's not what this is talking about. He's not talking about aliens, all right? He's talking about Gentiles. He's speaking to an ethnically Jewish people group right here. He's saying, look, I have sheep that are not ethnically Jewish. And, and the, the Old Testament prophets said about the Messiah that he would be a light for the nations, for the Gentiles. Jesus is the banner big enough for every type of person to come under. You see, we live in the most diverse county in the United States of America. There was a, a, a New York Times article that was released several years ago that was rating all the counties based on diversity. And guess what was number one? Fort Bend County. That the job market in Houston being a, sort of a hub has, has created the perfect environment for literally people from everywhere under the sun to come into one place. We live in a beautifully diverse place. And guess what? The only banner big enough to bring all those people together is Jesus. He has a message for every person from every place, from every background, from every tribe, in nation, in tongue. His leadership is unifying. That's the quality of his leadership. He's a unifier. He brings people from all over into one banner, one umbrella of his mercy and his grace and his church. This is why my father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. You know, I think there's an idea going around that um, Jesus lived this really awesome life. He was a great teacher. He's working miracles. And he was so good and so like uh, such a, a magnetic draw that everyone got jealous and just wanted to kill him. And that's partially true. But Jesus came 
from the beginning to die on a cross for you. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have the power, the right to take it up again. What that tells us about his leadership is that he actually is the one who can get the job done. He's strong. Not only is he good, but he's strong. He is the trustworthy, good, strong shepherd. I, uh, I found a story this week of uh, a man who was a novice skydiver. And this happened in the late 90s. He was from Britain. He was here in the, in the US. He was in Florida. And he's on vacation. And he thought, you know what I'm going to do on vacation? I'm going to go skydiving. And so he goes up skydiving, gets in the plane, right? He's with this instructor. And they're, uh, they're kind of jumping out together. I've never done this before. I think that they're tethered together, but I'm not positive about that. Is that right? They're kind of tethered together, right? And um, they go to pull that first shoot, nothing. Like, first shoot's broken. Thankfully, they have the backup shoot. They pull the backup shoot, nothing. And they're plummeting down to the earth. And the, the news story says that uh, as they're plummeting, as they're getting closer to the earth, that instructor begins to fold his arms and legs in such a way that he became the one that would land first. And that British man, he survived the fall because that instructor took the brunt of the fall. See, stories like that always just turn my heart about sacrificial love. When somebody does something sacrificial for somebody else, it just, mm, it does something in us. Because we know that's love. While the quality of Jesus' ministry and his leadership are all these amazing things that we just listed, the, the real qualifier of his leadership is this. It's what he repeats over and over again. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the real qualifier of his leadership. No other leader is going to lay down his life for you like Jesus. John 15, 13 says this. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for you. He laid down his life for you. You see, in the midst of all this uncertainty and mistrust of leaders, all the suspicion that we feel, Jesus steps in to this world and to our lives, and he, he releases and reveals an entirely different type of leadership. It is a good shepherd that leads us. We all ache to be led well. We're all being led by something and there's never been anyone like him. We need a leader who's good, who's trustworthy, who's strong, and who's sacrificial. We need Jesus, this perfect strength, unyielding to compromise, this ultimate display of love and sacrifice. And then three days later, he rises out of that tomb. He had the right, the power to take it up again. And because of that resurrection, you and I actually have hope. 
Through the cross, we have forgiveness, but through the resurrection, we have hope because we too will be raised, that we have something coming from him that will last forever. So, who will you follow? Who will, who will lead you? Who will, let, who will you let lead you? We could talk about um, a lot of ways that we could apply this, but I think what John had in mind when he wrote this was this, that you would come under the leadership of Jesus. Here's how we do that. We yield our hearts to him. Right? We, the Bible says that we repent. <clears throat> that word just means that we're going to turn around, that we're going to change the direction we're going, that we're going to change our minds, and we're going to come back to him, and that we're going to believe in him, that we're going to believe that he is the son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he died on that cross for you, not generic people you, but for you. Like if you were the last person on planet earth, he would have done that for you because that's the nature of his love. So we repent and we believe and the scripture says that we receive the power of the Holy Spirit within us, that God wants to come and renew you by his strength and by his power. So this morning, I want to invite you to come under the leadership of Jesus. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.